Good afternoon. Wow. Holy cow. I'm trying to gather myself. That was powerful. We can talk about experiencing God. We can sing about experiencing God. But there's sometimes when we just experience God. And we're filled with joy and wonder and amazement. And I don't know if you were here raising your hand out of delight or raising hands out of duty. But I just pray that you just got a glimpse. A glimpse of what it means to worship. A glimpse of what it means to... I don't know if you sent... Did anybody sent something in here just now? Yeah. All right. I'm not crazy, right? There's, there's some other people feeling it? All right. So sometimes I think I'm crazy, but um, Brian was also... He was feeling it, I think, um, and so I hope you did too. We're in a series called Experiencing God, and it's all about who God is. And at the center of the story of Scripture and the center of the story of our lives, it's not a story about you, it's not a story about me, it's a story about God. And what we've been talking about for these weeks is, is the story that God is writing from beginning into the scripture, beginning into our lives, is a story that, that there is a God who created all that there is and is still at work today, even today, all around us, everywhere we go, if that's in India or if that's in Chandler, if that's at school or if that's at work or at home, God is at work and God is moving all around us. And this God who created everything that there is and this God who is always at work around us He's pursuing after us because he loves us so much. And he pursues after us, not for a religion, but for a relationship. Pursues after us that we would know him and experience him and, and know his grace and his love for us. Know the plans that he has for our lives. And he speaks to us and he invites us to be involved with his work. And he, he's God. I mean, he could do the work just snap his finger and it would be done. He could say the word and it would be done, but God chooses to say, I want to use men and women, boys and girls, I want to use my people to do my work so that they get to be a part and experience what it's like to be a part of God's size works, touching people's lives, making a difference, making an impact, not just for here, but for all of eternity as well. And so we talked last week about sometimes when you're following God, you get to these moments where God says, take a step, and it doesn't make sense. He invites you to be a part of a work that's God-sized, and it's so big it doesn't make sense. And God is putting you in a moment, a crisis of belief moment, where you have to decide, am I going to base my decisions and the way that I live my life on my resources, on my ability, or could it be that God is calling me to stuff that's bigger than me, bigger than I can do on my own? That only by his enablement and only by his empowerment that I can go with him and accomplish the task. And so today we're going to talk about this moment and there's many of us doing experiencing God together and, and you're probably not quite here yet, but the number, the sixth point of this study says this, you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he's doing. And I'll just say this up front. I mean, this is, we're going to read some words from Jesus, and there's some strong words. And like, like sometimes Jesus teaches, and everybody's like, wow, that's so good. Yay, I want to be a part of that. And sometimes Jesus teaches, and it's like, uh-oh, he's talking to me. Ah. And that's why I wanted to share with you sort of the story of 
if you don't understand the part that all of this is rooted in a relationship, if you don't understand the part about all of this is rooted in love and grace and joy, if you don't understand that part, then what we're going to talk about today, it, it sounds like sacrifice with no benefit. It sounds like duty, but no delight. And what God is saying is, I want you to be rooted in such a relationship that the things I'm calling you to sacrifice, the things I'm calling you to lay down, they're not even a sacrifice because you're doing the delight and the desires of your heart. We all know what it means to be a part of change. We all know what it means to be part of adjustments in life. I mean, seriously, in the last six months, how many of us have made decisions to be more healthy? Anybody? Like you're going to work out more, you're going to eat right, you're going to do better at that. How many of you are doing very good at that? I don't know about you. Around the office, a few of us uh, have decided, we have decided in the past months to do insanity workouts. Anybody familiar with that? It's like Tybo without all the spandex. It's like Richard Simmons with longer shorts and no perms. But we're doing this, and I mean, I was killing myself a few months ago when I was going through insanity. I, I've probably never sweated that much in my whole entire life. But with all the sweat, I thought, man, I'm working out. I'm, I'm killing it. I deserve an extra carne asada burrito every week. I deserve this week to treat myself to two burgers instead of one. And so it's like this one area of sort of discipline just leaks into this big area of undiscipline where it just, it levels itself out. So I'm killing myself in sanity just to work off the burrito. We make these decisions that we're going to try to change, we're going to try to do better because there's areas we know we need to change in. Just honestly, who made a New Year's resolution this year? Anybody? All right, the rest of us, some of us are embarrassed to do. But, but like if we had to be honest and we said, am I still doing my New Year's resolutions? There'd be even fewer hands that go up because it's like we know what we're supposed to do, but we just have trouble finishing it sometimes. And so what we're going to talk about today, like I said, it's, it's the call that Jesus has to those who call themselves followers of Christ. So if you don't call yourself a follower of Christ, if you don't call yourself a Christian, just listen and say, this is what I'm going to look for in people who call themselves Christians, okay? Because this is what Jesus said. But if you call yourself a follower of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, would you today just pray as we're reading these passages that God would speak to your heart and that God would maybe begin to point out areas where you need to change. Areas that are actually keeping you from knowing Him, keeping you from experiencing Him, and keeping you from going on with Him. In fact, let's do that real quick. God, I want to pray for every man and woman, every young person in this room today that you would speak, and that, Lord, as we read these scriptures, God, that your Holy Spirit would penetrate to the deep places of our heart, bring conviction, but, Lord, fill us with joy and with hope of who you are and who you call us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we'll read verse 33 and then we'll back up a little bit. But every single week, for those of you who are doing Experiencing God, there's a memory verse in the, in the workbook as you're working through it. The memory verse for the unit that we're talking about today, which you'll study in a few weeks probably, is Luke 14, 33. And this is the memory verse. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. The memory verse is, any of you who does not give up everything he has 
cannot be my disciple. So there's a call that Jesus gives that obviously this is a pretty radical call to follow after him, a radical call to go after him. Let's now back up and get the context of what is that call? What does it look like? What does it mean? What is he asking from us? Verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. So first of all, there's large cloud, crowds that are traveling with Jesus. It's a, a crowd probably much, much bigger than this crowd. But these people are going with Jesus. They're following after him. And, and we have to assume that in a crowd that is large, that is following after Jesus, there's a bunch of people who are there for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, if I took a poll and said, why are you at church today? Why are you even here today? In a room this size, I mean, we would probably have a hundred different reasons, maybe. If we were to ask the crowd that was following Jesus that day, there would be countless different reasons why people were following Jesus. They were going after him that day. There would probably, probably be some that would say, they're, they're there for Dr. Jesus. Like, they're there because they've heard that he's healed people. They've heard he's healed the lame. They've heard he's done these amazing things. And they're maybe struggling with a sickness or a disease. And they, they're trying to get to Dr. Jesus. There's some that are there for fix-it Jesus. Because they've got a problem in their life. They've got some scenario or situation that's going on at home. And, and they're coming and they're saying, Jesus, you can fix it. Would you just please fix it? I know that you can do it. Would you do it? There's people who are there probably for like genie in a bottle Jesus. Not like the Britney Spears genie bottle, but like, like the genie in the bottle where you rub it and you wish and you get your wish. Like they're saying, I've got a plan. I've got something going on. And Jesus, you can make it better. And I'm praying, Jesus, that you'll bless my plan and make my plan work and help me Bless me. There's people for all different kinds of reasons. I mean, I'm sure there's guys who are following Jesus that day in the crowd just because some cute girls were going, and they're like, sign me up. The cute girls are following Jesus. I'm following Jesus. That's what we're doing today. All kinds of different reasons that people are following Jesus. But every single one of those that I just gave you, they're there for the same reason. They're there for what they can get out of it. And Jesus isn't interested in drawing a big crowd. He's not interested in keeping a big crowd. So he's not going to give a message that's going to sound great to hundreds and thousands more and people just come running. He's going to give a message that cuts straight to the heart of every person who's trying to follow him to say, what's the motivation behind following me? And are you really following me? Verse 26. So Jesus begins to turn to the crowd and he begins to teach and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, did you get that? He said, if, if you, if you want to come after me, you have to hate your mother and your father, your brother and your sister, your uncles and your aunts. You've got to hate your cousins. You've got to hate those. If you want to come after me, you've got to hate even your own life. What do you really think Jesus means by that? I mean, is he really saying, I want you to hate? Because if he is, that sounds more like a Jerry Springer show than it does Bible passage, right? If that's really what he wants us to do. But, but this kind of language is used in other places in Scripture. It's used about two brothers in the book of Genesis, Jacob and Esau. And it says that the Lord loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. It's used of these two ladies who were married to the same man. That's a long story I can't get into. But it says the husband loved the one wife and hated the other. 
Although we see he had relationship with both of them. So in, in this language, in the Semitic language, there's this expression, this word specifically for hate. It, it's not what we think when we mean hate. It, it's, it's a comparative word, and it's saying from Jacob and Esau, the love for Jacob was so great that it almost looked like hate towards Esau. The love for Rachel was so great that the way that Leah was treated almost looked like hate. It's not a word that says, I want you to literally hate, because that's not at all the call that God has at any place in Scripture. It's saying, I want, in comparison, your love for your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your husband, and wife, in comparison to the love that you have for God to look like hate. Here's, here's a, a word, a verse that helps us define it. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Jesus says this, and this clarifies our passage, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so it's comparatively. He's saying your ultimate devotion, your ultimate allegiance in life, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, has to be to God. When we talk about where are our priorities, where are we placing people on, on the list of our responsibilities, our first priority, our first responsibility is to God. That's why when this religious teacher comes to Jesus and he says, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. The first and the most important thing to do is to love God, to put him above all else. Because we're taught throughout scripture, you can't serve two masters. You can't be a disciple of two different things without one beginning to take precedence over the other. You can't say, I'm going to love these two things as the highest things exclusively and not neglect one or the other. So what Jesus is saying here is, if we try to allow other people, other relationships, other things to take precedence over him, we're not being the kind of follower. We're not being the kind of disciple that he calls us to be. And he's not saying that I should say to my wife, hey, honey, I just want you to know I hate you. It's been a bad day. No, 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 no. He's saying, he's not saying I'm going to be a worse husband if I would figure this out and start to live it. Here's what he's literally saying. If I would begin to love God with all of my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, if I would begin to do that and love him more than anything... I would be the best husband I could possibly be to Holly by doing that. If, if I were to love God with all of my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, I would actually be a better father to Olivia and Kate and to Will than me doing it on my own. Because if I love God like that and God begins to work in me and work His grace in me and His love in me, I'll be able to show them patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and the fruit of the Spirit. I'll be able to show that to them like I never could on my own power, I would be the best husband and the best father and the best friend if I would figure out what it means to have God as my ultimate authority and my ultimate allegiance would be to Him. I, I spoke last week a little bit about this idea of seven years ago we were in North Carolina and <coughs> we were at a place seven years ago where uh, we, we were feeling like God was leading us to Chicago, and, and it didn't make sense. Like, it was literally a step of faith, like a step off the edge, because financially it did not make sense. The numbers didn't add up. So we're in the middle of making this decision. 
And I was born and raised in North Carolina. I, I mean, all of my family, all of my friends, all of my history was there in that place. We had two small girls. We had a little boy on the way. Um, my family's there. W- what if I would have in that moment said, how can I leave and move to Chicago? All of my friends and family are here. How can I leave and take these two grandkids away from my parents, their grandparents? How could I do that to them? It's going to cost them. It's going to hurt them. And if I would have in that moment said, you know what, I, I need to keep my kids close to mom and dad, even though I knew God was saying go, I would have been saying, mom and dad, Jesus. If I would have said that and said, mom and dad, I need to keep the kids close to you, I need to keep that relationship, I would have been saying, God, no. You're not first. You're not best. You're not most important. In a similar way, think about it from my parents' perspective. My parents, on the one level, I'm sure hated to see us go. But what if they would have said, Aaron, how can you do that to us? How can you take our grandkids away from us? How can you move them across, halfway across the, the, the nation? How could you do that? They would have been saying, Aaron, we want you to put us ahead of God in your life. Aaron, we want you and Holly to say, no God, so you can say yes to us. And here's simply what Jesus is saying. If you're, if you're living your life that way, you're just missing out on what it means to be a follower of Christ. You're missing out on what it means to be a disciple. Verse 27, he says, And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. If you don't take up these things, if you don't surrender these things to Jesus, if you try to hold on to them on your own, you're not following Christ like he calls you. You're missing out on what God has for you in your life. And you may say, but what I have is pretty good, and and maybe it is pretty good. I would just make an argument from Scripture. It's not best. Because God works in best. And God works with purposes that are better. We hold on to things that are good enough, but God is saying, but I've got better. I've got the best. Would you trust me? Would you step out? Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. It sounds like my six-year-old son playing with Legos, but literally what they're talking about is like security for a city. You would build these towers that would be like watchtowers to make sure there's no enemy coming or whatever. Suppose one of you wants to sit down and build a tower. Will we not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build... And was not able to finish. So you have to understand from this context, this is um, a very Eastern mentality of, of, of writing and thought. And, and you see in there three different times, finish, complete, finish, completed. And what is going on here is, is Jesus is saying there's this shame-based culture in that time that he's writing. Where shame and guilt were associated with, with your honor and you always wanted to be able to put forth this kind of honorable reputation. And if you were a person who started into a project that you weren't able to finish, it would be shameful for you. You would be ridiculed. And he says, so in turn, what you need to do, if you're going to do something like build a a tower, you need to sit down and count the cost ahead of time. Building a tower was an incredibly valuable thing for a city, an incredibly good thing to do. But Jesus said this, if you're going to do something as important as that, 
count the cost ahead of time before you start. And if you don't have enough to finish it, well, then what do you do? Jesus says, saying in, in a similar way, before you decide to be a Christian, before you decide to be a follower of Christ, before you decide to say, hey, I want to go after you, God. I want to experience you in my life. Before you do that on the front end, count the cost. Consider, what, what would, does that really mean? What does that look like? If I were to follow Christ, what would he ask of me? And realize this. What he will ask of you is everything. And then you have to make the decision, so do I still want to follow God when it costs me everything? We'll talk about a little what that looks like in a moment. But here's what he's saying. In the seriousness of, of, of a moment, whether it's building a tower, and that's just a, an example he's giving, whether it's should I follow Christ or not, he's saying this. You've got to accurately assess yourself and your abilities. And if we would come before God and we would accurately assess who we are, not according to pop psychology, not according to our culture, but according to Scripture, if we would say, I want to know who I am, here's what Scripture says. We were born in sin, we live as sinners, and we sin. Our nature is sin. We're, we're born in it, we live in it. And so if we were to ever build a case to say, can I be a disciple? Do I deserve to be a disciple? Am I good enough to be a disciple of Christ? The answer for every single one of you, and the answer for me, according to Scripture, every time would be absolutely not. You can't do it on your own. You don't have what it takes to follow Christ. You're not good enough to get to Christ on your own. If you were, there would be no need for a cross. If you were, there would be no need for Jesus to give his life for us. So what scripture says is what we could not do on our own, none of us, what we could not do on our own, Jesus did for us in laying his life down on a cross for us. You know that, right? Pretty good news, right? That is great stuff. He says it doesn't matter who you are, what you have done. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough. So while you were still sinners, Christ died for you and for me in our sin. So if we were to count the cost and say, do I have what it takes to finish, to be a follower, to do this, the answer would be no. On my own, I can't. But through Christ, in Christ, and Him working through me, Scripture says, I can do all things. All things that He calls me to. He gives another example, verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will we not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. So you have the building tower example, now you have a go to battle example. You're leading an army, you have 10,000 people, and you're coming up against an army with 20,000 people. You're thinking, do I, do I have it in us? Do we have the ability to, to defeat them? And the answer is, strategically speaking is no you don't have a chance so you count that cost you understand that ahead of time but remember what we talked about last week you have this guy in judges named Gideon who God says Gideon I want you to lead my army into battle and and, and he has 30,000 people and God says guess what Gideon you have way too many people get rid of some 
He comes to a gym and says, Gideon, you've got way too many people. If, if you fight with that many people, you'll take credit. I, wanna, I want you in a battle that I only can take credit for. And so God says, Gideon, you've got 300 soldiers. You've got 300 soldiers. But on the outside, there's 135,000 soldiers. But Gideon, don't be afraid. Gideon, don't be scared because this is my fight, God says. God says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to defeat the army. I'm going to do what you can't do with your ability, with your resources. But just like Gideon, God wants us to all understand our inability apart from him. Not that we're bad, not that, there's, not, not, not that he's condemning us, but he's saying if we would just understand that we have to live in dependence on him, not independently doing our own thing, if we would just understand that, that he will give us the resources to fulfill what he calls us to do, and what he calls us to do is greater than anything we'll dream on our own, and if we would trust him, he will do in us amazing things, and He will do through us great things to be a blessing to this world. I have no earthly idea where I'm at in my notes. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. Jesus says, I don't do anything that I don't see the Father doing. So here's what Jesus says. I see where God is working, and I join Him. And He calls us to follow that same model. See where God is working, and get involved. Listen to God speak. Make the adjustments that you need to make in whatever area of your life. And then follow Him. And those adjustments are being willing. It doesn't mean you give up everything. It means you're being willing to. If God were ever to ask you. Anybody in here old enough to have ever heard of Brill Cream? I said it wrong in the first service and I got lectured to by so many people. So Brill Cream was like this product before like Axe Body Products was ever popular was ever invented. So, so Brill Cream, all I knew about it was there's, there's this little slogan that said, a little dabble do ya. A little dabble do ya. It's pretty effective because I've never even heard of it and I've still heard their, their tagline. But here's the little rhyme they had. Brill Cream, a little dabble do ya. Use more only if you dare, but watch out, the gals will go on to pursue ya. They'll love to put their fingers through your hair. And it said, a little dabble do you, and all you need is a little bit. And that's the way that some people try to follow Christ. I just want a little. I just want you to be in this part of my life. But, 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 but this part, that, that's mine. Or maybe you give them a little bit more and you'll say, listen, I, I'll give you one day a week. God's Sunday is yours. But keep your hands off of Monday through Saturday. And Jesus is just saying it doesn't work like that. It's not how his kingdom operates. It's not a little dabble, do you? It's not just a little bit of Jesus and everything else will be okay. He's saying, if you want to follow me, follow me in everything. Go after me with all that you have. 
You feel weak? It's okay. Go after me in your weakness. You feel like you can't complete the work? That's okay. I'll complete it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul is writing and he says this, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is a promise that if God begins a work in you and God calls you to a task, you may not have the resources to do it, you may not have the ability to do it, but if you follow him and if you obey him and you trust him, he will bring to completion the work that he has started. He doesn't leave half-built towers around. He doesn't leave half-built disciples around. He doesn't give up halfway through the project. He doesn't give up when you say, I failed you again, God. You know what? I failed you again, God. He doesn't leave you half-built. He will finish the work he created in you. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is writing about the weakness that he has in himself. And what does he do with the weakness? And God speaks to him. In verse 9, and he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds to these words of God, and he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And Paul says, so it's when I'm weak that I really am strong. It's when I realize that I need God, that I'm totally dependent on Him. It's then that I get His power. It's not when I'm walking around saying, I've got it together. I've got all the power I need. It's when I finally get to the place of confession and honesty before God. Say, I need you. And in those weak moments, that's when we get Him. And so the reality is, it's impossible to follow Christ and not change and not have adjustments to make because that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Jesus himself modeled this for us. 2 Corinthians 8 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. That Jesus gave up the rights that he had a son of God. He left heaven and he came to earth and he became poor so that we may become rich. Philippians 2 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and taking the very nature of a servant, made him being made in human likeness. He, he humbled himself. He walked this earth for 33 years. He took on the form of a man and suffered at the hands of men. He suffered innocently, but he made us a way. He adjusted, he changed, he sacrificed, he laid down, not for his own benefit, but for our benefit, for our good. And we have to trust that in following Jesus and following his example, that when we make those changes that he calls us to, when we adjust in those areas he reveals we need to adjust in, that it won't be just for our benefit, which it will be for ours, but bigger than that, it will be that we can be a blessing to others, that we can impact and influence this world far beyond our own ability. I was processing this lesson with our whole creative arts team this past week, and, and we're studying Experiencing God together, and we're talking about what, what it means 
um, in our lives, and, and our team began to share, and so we had, we had one person share, and, and one of the people in their home just recently lost their job, and so now they're making financial adjustments to say, we want to still be obedient to God, but we have to make these adjustments in this new situation. And how are we going to do that? And they're walking that road and just, just giving a testimony of God's faithfulness even in the midst of trials. A couple other people were sharing about not too long ago, they were working in the corporate world and they just felt like God was saying that he wanted them to be involved in ministry because you know that is where the big bucks are. So they were like, okay God, we're going to be ministers so we can make big money like Aaron. And, and so they were talking about how that worked in their life and they took a step of faith. They made the necessary adjustments. They made the cutbacks in their style of living that they were used to, but how God is working in the midst of that. A couple people begin to share about decisions that they had to make as far as raising children and what they should do, and a spouse that stayed home to care for children for a while. Another one of our staff members here about the decision to bring in a foreign exchange student for a semester and the adjustments that that was requiring, but they felt like they were doing what God had called them to do. All this to say, I don't know what kind of adjustments God would call you to. I don't know what kind of change he would call you to. But I know at the heart of it, he's just asking, will you be willing? Are you willing to do what he's asking you to do? For those of you who are doing the study experiencing God, I've got a problem with experiencing God that I just need to confess. There's something I don't like about the book. When I read the stories and I read these examples, I hear stories of like people who are packing their bags and moving to Thailand. And I'm like, they're just crazy. Like, why are they doing that? And there's just these big stories about people selling everything and going after God. And, 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 and the reality is we, we have a lady here, Roberta. We brought her before you guys a couple months ago. She did that. She sold everything. She packed her bags. She moved to Kenya. She's living at Haruma. But throughout experiencing God, there's just big story after big story after big story. And I'm like, what about the small things? What about those little areas of adjustment? And here's the thing. We will never, ever be obedient to those big calls of God if we say no to the little ones. We're never going to be willing to do something above and beyond, something God-sized in our lives, if we will not say, okay, God, yes, God, when he speaks to us about those little areas of our lives, which probably in reality aren't that little after all. Let's finish this passage, Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Jesus says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple so this um, new testament was originally written in greek so i went back and studied greek for you guys a little bit to find out when jesus says everything what does he mean and after tons of greek study i realized that everything means everything everything any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. What in the world is he talking about? Again, he's talking comparatively. He's not saying don't have a house, don't have a car, don't get married, don't have kids. He's not saying those kind of things. He's saying 
Don't let those things be the priority of your life. Don't let those things consume you. Understand, he's God. That other stuff is not. Those other people are not. And in a proper perspective, there's a willingness to say, God, I want you first and foremost in my life. I want everything else in my life to come after that. I mean, practically speaking, it's me trying to live out a life, trying as a follower of Christ to say, in my life, my priorities are God first, my wife and my kids second, and then other stuff. And never allowing that sequence to change. And always, it's a struggle. We know that it's a struggle. But when we find ourselves allowing other things to creep up, other people to creep and compete with God, we say, God, I'm so sorry. I want you to be first. I want to get back to that priority. And so he says, I want you to give up everything to me, to be my disciple. He doesn't mean literally you sell it, you get rid of it. But he's saying keep the proper perspective, the, the proper priorities in your lives. And the adjustments that we need to make in this room today are many. And I don't know what yours are, but maybe maybe you've been struggling with an area of unforgiveness. Somebody did something to you and you've struggled for so many years to give up, to give that over, to forgive them, and you think they don't deserve to be forgiven. And maybe you're right. You may be absolutely right. But I'm telling you this, you holding on to unforgiveness is going to cost you more than it costs them. You holding on to unforgiveness will hold you captive and they will have a power over you. And it will cost you. But if you give that over to Christ, if you give that hurt, that pain, that area of injustice for you over to Christ, you say, I'm not going to let that hold me back. I'm going to adjust my life. I'm going to change through the power of Christ in me. I'm going to forgive as Christ has forgiven me. And it'll break the power that that stronghold has over you. And that adjustment will set you free to be who God has called you to be, to follow after Him. Maybe it's an area of sin. Maybe there's just something you've struggled with and you've fought and fought this battle and you give in to temptation and you fail but maybe today you need to say God I want to change I want to make that adjustment because I'm telling you that that area of sin it, it may be fun for a while I'm not saying it's not but I'm saying this it is costing you and it will cost you and it will cost others around you deal with it Allow God to deal with it through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Let the resurrection of po power of Christ set you free and deliver you from your stronghold. So there's these kind of character changes and adjustment that we need to make to be the people God wants us to be. There's, there's circumstantial changes that need to be made sometimes. And whether that's in jobs or, or homes, whether the circumstance that needs to be changed, it's financial and that's why we do a, something like bring Dave Ramsey simulcast here to Cornerstone to help set us free financially because the reality is there's many of us who say I would want to be obedient and I would want to do what God called me to do but I can't afford it because I've jacked up my finances so bad I can't even say yes when God comes and asks me to do something I want to help others and be a blessing and meet needs but I can't because mine are jacked up maybe there's financial changes that need to be made 
you've got to do this thing called a budget. You're like, oh, I hate that word. You need, maybe you need to make changes there. Maybe it's a relationship change. Maybe you're a husband in here and you've been a jerk. And you need to just go and make the changes and say, God, I am sorry. And go to your wife and say, I'm sorry, I've blown it. Maybe there's some kind of relationship adjustment you need to make. Or maybe it's your beliefs. There's a change. It's time for a change right now. Maybe God has been speaking to you and you, you say, but I still have questions. We all have questions. Maybe you just need to surrender. The willingness to change no matter what God is calling us to change. That's really the key issue here. Will change, will adjustments in our life cost us? Absolutely. But I'm just telling you, the cost is always worth it. Because Christ is worth it. And He's worthy. And you will never regret making a decision for Christ and following Him. You won't look back on your life with regret and say, I only wish I wouldn't have accepted Christ. That ruined everything in life. You'll never regret being obedient and walking after Him. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for us in this room today. I pray for the words of the scriptures that we read today that as challenging as they may be, God, and as, as difficult as, as they are to our ears, God, that, that somewhere deep in our hearts, your spirit would make these words come home to us, make them alive to us, make them attractive to us, that we would understand that, that anything that we give up on this earth for you is so worth it because Jesus you are so worth it you have given your life for us on a cross your precious life not because you did anything wrong but in place of our sins you have been so gracious to us and so good to us and God your gospel is the greatest thing we've ever heard and so God I pray that as some of us struggle through what it means to change. We wrestle through what it means to adjust our lives to you. That Holy Spirit, you would give us the insight, the wisdom, and the power we need to change. Because you're not asking us to clean ourselves up. You're not asking us to change ourselves. You're saying, I've already initiated the work on the cross. Believe it. And let the Holy Spirit begin to work it out in our lives, God. And I thank you for the work that you will do in this room, God, as we step towards you. As we begin to walk and say, have your way, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray.